Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. If you have questions about our church or following Jesus, feel free to reach out to us at info at theplantchurch.org. Now, here's today's message. So if you've ever been to any great stream or if you've ever been to Niagara Falls, this is a familiar sound. This beautiful sound of rushing water cascading over rocks or even the waves on a beach. You know, if you've ever been into surfing or something like that. Like this is what water, when we imagine water, this is typically what we imagine. Um, Even so much so that if you have the baby little sleeping monitor thingy like to play sounds, this is the sound that will also come up when you think about water. And it's a sound that I've grown accustomed to the past seven weeks myself. And the thing about water that I love is that it's so powerful. Okay? There's one element where water is so calm, you know, and we like to control it and put it into our little like bathtubs or we put it in a pool and we say, okay, water, you stay there. You're good and safe. I can go play with my rubber ducks or I can go and swim in here or I could do whatever in this space. But there's another element of water that is super dangerous that we don't appreciate. Um, the fact that waves can get, you know, over 30 feet high to begin with, no one wants to be caught in that. Or the fact that outer, we know more about outer space than we actually do about the depths of our own ocean. Like, why is it we know more about a, a series of stars and planets that are billions of light years away more than the fish that has the googly eyes in the depths of the ocean? That's a problem, and we need to know more about it. Um, but ultimately... Historically, we've always had this kind of fear over what is inside water and what water actually does, so much so in the ancient world. Because, like, in the ancient people even saw water as an image for chaos. You know, it's the place where the Philistines and the Greeks came from. It's where the massive monsters and the storms were that killed sailors frequently. It was the place of death. And above all, I think the scariest thing about water for them and us is that we can't control water. Even the Greeks would offer sacrifices to Poseidon so that way they could have a, sem- a semblance of control over their voyages on the water. If um, you know, Poseidon viewed you favorably and you, and you didn't convince Poseidon to be on your side with your sacrifice, you know, you died and you must have angered him because you didn't offer a good enough sacrifice. That was the mindset of that time. Again, water is terrifying in the ancient world just as much as it is today. You just need to look at the news. Even a couple of weeks ago, we had a whole submarine incident where we were terrified of what was going to happen to those people in the water. And the thing that scares us most about water is the fact that we can't control it in its worst aspects. Because the reality is, is we love control. It's the most quintessential aspect of our human nature. Even to the point that when many of us read Genesis 1 and we think of God's command to rule creation, we think of it as a domineering task to exploit the earth rather than to cultivate it like a gardener. And there's a primary reason for this. When we think about our type of control or unhealthy control, it's usually informed by worry or deep anxiety, stuff that Jesus directly preaches against and preaches the kingdom into. It's so human for of us to want to control everything we touch. There's a lot to be afraid of on this earth, from super waves to freaky fish, the depths of the ocean. All of us have different reactions to it. And I'm talking about the chaos of lack of control this time, not water. 
Some of us are aggressive controllers where we say, if we can't control it, I will make it happen. We go fight in our fight or flight mode. We try to make things happen according to our will. And usually that happens in like a way that can be sometimes abusive or mean or just derogatory to the people around us. And sometimes we're the manipulative controllers where we like to say, oh, I'll make this happen so that way I don't look like a bull in a china shop. I'm a nice controller or the passive aggressive one. I don't want to make you do what I want physically, but maybe emotionally. I don't want to give you any other choice. And don't get me wrong, we can use our power healthily, like taking care of our emotional, physical, and um, mental well-being, or making sure that our families are provided for, or being responsible at our job. However, life finds a way to give us problems in situations that feel too big, like a wave cascading over you. And sometimes we react in ways that don't display our trust in Jesus' power. So what do you think you can control but you actually can't? And by that I mean where are the areas of influence in your life where you feel like you're trying to master the chaos yourself? Especially the ones where you can preserve your agenda, your appearance, or what your idea is of a good life. Is it your finances? Maybe it's your children's future or the outcome of your relationship with your parents. Or maybe it's a relationship with your boss or your coworker, all, or the political world, your health. All these categories are examples of areas where we historically try to micromanage, especially when it feels like chaos. We can't help but desire to master the chaos on our own. We frequently believe that if we can master the chaos in our life, it will be good and we will be safe, right? If I can control this one area, it can't get out of control and my security is then kept intact. And sometimes we get so familiar with these patterns of control, they become second nature and unquestioned when we're often walking out of the way of Jesus and into our own destruction and death. The disciples of Jesus weren't any different from us. When things got hard, they often tried to control the situation so they either don't look stupid or just so they can survive. Trusting God's power is not their first instinct. But it's the only place that we can see how deeply God is in control and how much he equally loves us in that. So today we're going to look at Matthew 14, 22 to 33, and we're going to talk about authentic surrender. What does it look like to authentically surrender to God's power? What does it look like to actually trust that he is as good as he says he is? And in that, we'll see in the disciples, and especially Peter, that it's an authentic surrender to Jesus' power that brings us to deeper intimacy with him. And by intimacy, I mean deeper, a deeper relationship of knowing his love and then also giving love back to him in return. And that intimacy with him shows us how Jesus is the master of the chaos and not us. Let's pray together as we begin. Holy Spirit, you are here, and it's evident that your power is at work in our midst. We invite you here and say welcome. Jesus, would you help us settle into your love this morning and know that you are a good God who deeply loves us and whose power is over all the earth. Remind us of the moments where you showed your love so vividly, whether it was through provision or when we were afraid, whether it was through healing. Lord Jesus, come. Let all the fear go to the side. Let any guilt or shame fall to the side and let the glory of God be the only thing we see today. 
We love you and praise you in your holy and precious name. Amen. So I'm gonna, we're going to start off by reading this passage together. Okay. So immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and cross to the other side of the lake while he sent the people home. After sending them home, he went up to the hills by himself to pray. Night fell while he was there alone. Meanwhile, the disciples were in trouble far away from land, for a strong wind had risen, and they were fighting heavy waves. About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them, walking on the water. When the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified. In their fear, they cried, it's a ghost. But Jesus spoke to them at once. Don't be afraid, he said. Take courage, I am here. Then Peter called to him, Lord, if it is really you, tell me to come to you walking on the water. Yes, come. Jesus said. So Peter went to the other side of the boat, uh, over the side of the boat, and walked on the water toward Jesus. But when he saw the strong wind and the waves, he was terrified and began to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouted. Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. You have so little faith, Jesus said. Why did you doubt me? When they climbed back into the boat, the wind stopped. Then the disciples worshiped him. You really are the Son of God, they exclaimed. So I want to give some context to this passage. This is right, this story happens um, in the middle of a couple of miracle stories that happen. Jesus just finishes feeding the 5,000, but also, and more importantly, Jesus just hears word that John the Baptist, his cousin, had been beheaded. So Jesus is actually in the middle of grieving right now. He is not in his happiest state. It's been a long day. He hears this news, and his first reaction is, I want to go to the mountain to pray and be connected with God. You know, in his humanity, he knew what was needed for his soul to be restored with God's presence. And so he wants to go and pray before God, but 5,000 plus people come and follow him, and they want to also be around Jesus. So Jesus says, all right, let's go minister to them. And then he gives them food. He breaks the 5,000, and then he tries to send them away again. He says, disciples, you go. I'll dismiss 5,000 plus people. I'm going to go to the mountains to pray. And that's what he does, because Jesus knows it's important for him to connect to the Father. He had just finished feeding 5,000 people on the same day miraculously, and this memory of Jesus is something called a storm story. They always lead to a revelation of God's deliverance, okay? And I mean by storm story is that the early church remembered all of these storm stories because they told a special, special message about Jesus being the savior of all creation, that he was mastering over the chaotic waters, and he was bringing people into deliverance. It's specifically showing how God is the master of the chaos and the deliverer of all all sin and evil um, and from death. And the story is broken into three parts by this phrase, and Jesus at once, or and Jesus immediately. In Greek, it's all the same word, kai euthus, which is translated differently depending on what translation you go to. And the ancient church saw this as a memory device for the ancient listeners, because not everyone could read. So if you could remember by this one phrase, you could remember all three parts of the story of Jesus walking on the water. So today, when we analyze this passage, we're going to mimic that tradition and examine the story into three parts when we're talking about what it means to authentically surrender to God and trust his power. And so the first thing I want to highlight is that when we're trying to authentically surrender to God or anything we're trying to control in our lives is that fear is often our first response to losing control. So when the disciples go out onto the winds, okay, this is the first and immediately part where the disciples go out onto the boat, they obey Jesus pretty 
easily. You know, Jesus says, go on a boat. They're like, we've been on a boat before. We can do that. All of us have been there. Jesus tells us to do a regular day-to-day task. And we're like, yep, right on board, Jesus. I can go in that direction. I've done it 10,000 times before. They go onto a boat. And something that we're not familiar with is that the storm they're experiencing is actually very normal. You see, in the Sea of Galilee, and you can even experience it today, there's a wind tunnel formed by two mountains at the north end of the Galilee that form these storms all the time, especially on the north side even today. So sailors will be aware of it and know how to navigate that. And so even first century fishermen like Peter and the disciples, they know these, you know, they know this storm, they know how to navigate it. There are big waves, yeah, it's a kind of a stressful moment, but it's not unfamiliar to them. And I want you to pay attention to that because the Bible doesn't say they saw the waves and the winds and they were terrified while they're in the boat. They're actually in control in this moment. They know what's happening. The moment that they're afraid is actually when they see Jesus. And I want us to pay attention to that because they see Jesus. The Greek says it's a phantasmos, like a phantom. And then they're like, oh my gosh, it's a ghost. And suddenly there's this implicit belief that the disciples think that Jesus, this myster- who they don't know is Jesus, this ghost is controlling the winds and the waves and wants to kill them. So what went from a normal day out on sea, I'm going out fishing, or like it's just late at night, I'm going to the other side and the winds are kind of chaotic, you know, we've done this before, turned into, oh my gosh, it's a ghost-powered storm, we're gonna die, okay? Because in the ancient world, This is a normal thing to believe because they have this category in their brains that there are ghosts, there are spirits, there are demons. It's our modern Western brains that are like ghosts and spirits. Those don't exist, okay? But in the ancient world, they were fully in tune with this reality that this was a spirit causing the waves. And so then they become afraid. And then add the fact that it's 3 a.m. right now. You try to think of anything sensible at 3 a.m. I dare you. I've tried it with a baby, okay? But there's also this reality right here that, you know, like any like sleep and work deprived fisherman, they believe this figures out for them. They, they're afraid of his power. There's this reality that we're just like this, okay? Not many of us get scared of the normal day-to-day things that Jesus might ask us to do, you know, like be a committed person, to be a committed spouse, you know, that's a Jesus command, that's a God command, you know, go to work, that's a day-to-day regular command. All of us or most of us will typically do well at these things because they're standard commands, but how often have we encountered a situation where this was supposed to go as it should have and then suddenly it's not exactly what I thought it was? You know, it suddenly flipped at the bat, and it's now a situation I've lost control over. It's a ghost-powered storm or something like that, and now I'm afraid and I'm dipping into fear. This happens on a regular basis for us. Or how often do we get scared of Jesus? Maybe we don't recognize him, or maybe we are afraid that he'll make us do something that we hate doing because it's what our flesh doesn't want to do. Maybe we don't like the idea of not having complete control and the idea of, having, of Jesus having some control annoys us. Maybe like the disciples, we don't understand Jesus' power or his character, so we get scared of his control. But here Jesus is revealing an aspect of his divinity to the disciples, and they don't recognize him. When Jesus is in charge, sometimes we don't recognize him because we prescribe what he is supposed to do for us. We say, Jesus, do this instead of, Jesus, where are you in this situation? We go immediately to trying to manipulate the God of the universe and take control of him to make him do our will instead of saying, Lord, your will be done in this. We don't actually surrender to his power. We try to maintain our semblance of power 
so we can have our situation reach our conclusion. Like us, the disciples were very comfortable with Jesus in certain environments, but this is busting their boxes of who Jesus is. Their fear likely wants whatever this is to be shut down and stopped instead of experiencing this aspect of his divinity. You know, fear is our first response to powerlessness in our lives, whether we fight, flight, or freeze. It's just how it is. There's a situation. We need to respond to it. We're not in control. I want to do something to solve it quick. But a revelation of Jesus' power is also a revelation of Jesus' identity. A revelation of his identity is also a revelation of his love. The disciples don't know that authentic surrender to Jesus' power would bring them to deeper intimacy with him. The second part, the second and immediately, and Jesus immediately does another thing. He says, calm down, it's me, don't be afraid. It's easier to mask fear, but masked fear is not authentic surrender to God's power. So when Jesus says this phrase, I think in the NLT, it says, I have a different translation where I wrote that down. He says, don't be afraid, take courage, I am here. Another translation is literally, calm down, it's me, don't be afraid. So this is a fun phrase because Jesus saying it's me in Greek actually gives the disciples a little nod to his divine identity. Because in Greek, the literal phrase is, I am. So it's like, take courage, I am. Don't be afraid. Where else do we hear that phrase, I am? All the way back in Exodus when God reveals his own identity to Moses. I am who I am. The Jewish people historically knew that the phrase I am referred to God's name specifically. So here in the middle of this chaos, okay, the disciples think that Jesus is trying to kill them and they're not sure who Jesus is. Jesus says, don't worry, I am. Don't be afraid. You know, he's giving a little nod to his identity in the middle of all of their distress. And on one end, I'm like, Jesus, this is not the time for to make a cameo and side reference, but that's probably all how unconcerned of the storm he is. And so then Peter steps up as he usually does, and he goes to Jesus and he says, Lord, if it is you, tell me to go out onto the waves. And we kind of view this romantically as bold faith. But I also want you to think about Peter's track record so far in the story. He's usually quick and big in his first response. He's like, you are the son of God. And then like literally five verses later, he's like, maybe Jesus don't go die on the cross, you know. Um, At the Last Supper, he says, um, what does he say? Oh my gosh, I'm blanking and I'm preaching. That's embarrassing. He says, Jesus, you know, if someone tries to kill you, I'll kill them. And Jesus is like, if you're gonna deny me three times before the morning. And then what happens? He denies him three times. So this is in Peter's track record. He is getting big and he's trying to be really strong in his first response. But the reality is, is Peter is terrified of who this might be because he doesn't recognize Jesus because he can't control whatever this phantom is. He's actually an aggressive um, controller. He's trying to hit the problem head on. He's not really doing bold faith. He's doing faith if it's Jesus, but he's also trying to control the situation and get things to calm down. Peter's likely masking his fear by anxiously testing his fear. Some people look at the diving board, you know. Let's go back to water metaphors here. They look around. They get scared to test it, you know. They might ask some people, like, how their experience was, and then they might try it out later, you know. Some people look at the diving board and say, heck no, I'm going the other way. Some people look at the diving board and say, I'm going to jump right off of it. And someone might say, that's 30 feet up in the air. And he said, I don't care. Have you ever done diving before? No, I haven't. I'm going to dive off of it because I'm afraid. 
The difference, I am definitely the person that looks at the diving board and says, mm, maybe not. And then my little brother, Caleb, who looks like Captain America, is like, I'm going to jump off that. And he goes and does it. But I want to take a moment to say, affirm, Peter is definitely an aggressive manipulator. And all of those responses are fear responses. And he's someone who believes, I can master this chaos if I just hit this problem head on. However, I want to go to this phrase where the Bible says that Peter starts to walk on the water. He looks at the wind and the waves, you know, something that he's familiar with. He's seen plenty of times as a sailor, and he begins to sink. So in the NLT, it says he began to sink. Um, I'm going to take you to the Greek. We're going to nerd out together. I'm going to take you on this wonderful journey. And I'm going to go to this phrase that, where we read, he began to sink. It's this word, harxamenos kataponte zestai, okay? Um, say that 10 times fast. All right, so the first word, arxamenos, is something called an um, aorist middle participle masculine singular nominative. So what does that mean? It's a noun that acts like a verb. The subject is doing something to themselves, okay? And I want to hang on that idea of a middle verb. In a middle verb, and I, you did not expect to come to a grammar lesson right here, but in any language, when you think of a middle verb, a middle verb is something where the, the person, the subject, is doing something to themselves. So in English, you would usually say, he tripped himself. He did this to himself. If you remember Tarzan from the early 2000s, there is this one scene where one person's making the other person punch themselves in the face. Like, why are you hitting yourself? Why are you hitting yourself? Why are you hitting yourself? That's a great way to remember what a middle verb is. It's when the subject is doing something to themselves. And then it's present middle infinitive, which is the subject is doing something to themselves right now. It's a to be verb. So kicking yourself, okay? Hitting yourself or just tripping yourself or sinking yourself in Peter's case. A better way to translate this, and not all translations get this, is that Peter is, began to sink himself. A super literal translation is himself, he began to sink himself. But a better way of saying it, he began to sink himself. It's easier to mask our fear when we want to surrender to Jesus, but how many of us have actually sunk ourselves when we try to trust Jesus? When we're not honest with our fear and disappointments, we shortcut authentically trusting Jesus' power. So when have you let fear from, kept, keep you from truly trusting God's power? I know for me, it was always these if-it-is-your-will prayers when I would pray for healing over people. I saw I would pray for people so often and not see a response. And the one time recently in my life, one of the times I saw Jesus actually come down in healing. I didn't say, Lord, if it's your will. I came to this point of desperation, and I said, God, your power is on the line, not mine. And that's the only time recently I've seen Jesus do some healing. It wasn't because that I said, if it is your will, it's because I said, your power is on the line and not mine. But I want to bring back to this, this issue of sinking myself. In the other moments, how many times when I've prayed Am I saying, Lord, if it's your will to try to scapegoat and be direct with Jesus to say, Jesus, I desire this in my life and I'm trusting you with it and I'm trying to trust you with it. But if it's your will, you know, you don't have to if you don't want to. Jesus values honesty in our prayers more than anything. And sometimes and often we're not very honest with him with what we're actually hoping for and expecting. Yeah, Jesus knows your brain, you know, but he's not going to manipulate. He's not going to control like that. He's invitational. 
in moments when we've prayed for something to happen and then settled for less because we're afraid and then saying, look, God did it, you know? Moments like that where we sink ourselves because we shortcut God's power doing something. Because if, if we want to take control over something, Jesus will say, okay, have your way, child. Go ahead. But if we don't give God the opportunity to act, you know, we're not actually trusting Jesus with his power to do the thing that we're hoping that he will do to save us from our situations. There's no magic formula to get God to do what we want. Our relationship is a divine conversation of us declaring love to him and him, his love to us. We can only trust that. We can't manipulate that. We need to authentically trust God's power when we surrender to him. Acknowledge your fear of God not answering when you want. Acknowledge the fear of disappointment because then you know how to start authentically surrendering to Jesus' power and you'll begin to know how that brings you into deeper intimacy with him. And so in this last point, he is faithful in the chaos and patient with our surrender. So in all of this, you know, Peter's not authentically trusting Jesus, not authentically surrendering to Jesus' power and control, you know. And it's at this moment where he cries, Master, rescue me. Lord, rescue me. And it's actually at this moment where Peter has no power that he trusts Jesus with his power. And this is the moment that's most important. This story isn't really about Peter's ability to walk on the waters at the end of the day. It's about Jesus' identity as the only savior. It's the only deliverer and the only one stronger than the chaos and the waves. That Jesus is the master of the chaos. And when Jesus picks him up out of the water with his hands, he, we get this one translation where it says, you have little faith. Um, but this scholar, N.T. Wright, says, a fine lot of faith you've got. Why did you doubt? In other moments in the Bible, when you see people called little faith, you know what they do? They move mountains into the ocean. So this is actually a compliment. He, Jesus is actually not, you know, criticizing him, saying, like, why didn't you walk better, Peter? He's saying, Peter, look at what you did. It's the pride of the Father going through Jesus to Peter, saying, look at what you did. I'm so proud of you. A fine lot of faith you've got. Why did you doubt you were so close? Do you see the difference in tone? One is a tone of criticism that you didn't trust enough. You didn't have enough faith to be healed. You didn't have enough faith for this to be solved. And the other is, look how far you got. I'm proud of you. And that's the voice of the Father. Even though Peter doesn't authentically trust Jesus and trusts him out of fear, Jesus sees the little faith he's able to give and is faithful regardless. He walks back to the boat with Peter, and Peter finds that walking with Jesus is how he accesses the power of Jesus. There's this divine relationship in the Bible where as we get to know Jesus, we get to know his power, and as we know his power, we get to know how deeply he loves us, and it goes back and forth and back and forth. And when we don't take the time to trust him with how powerful he is, we don't get to take the opportunity to see how deeply he loves us. When we don't trust him with the power, the things that we want to have control over, we don't see how beautiful his hands are when he takes control of the situation. So again, it's not a moral issue if we don't trust Jesus' power technically. You know, Jesus says, yeah, there's a lot of things in your control. But when we choose not to trust him, because we can choose to do that, we miss out on seeing another aspect of his divine love for us. Peter is able to walk with Jesus. 
when he stops masking his fear and actually reaches out to the hand of Jesus. Here is when he surrenders all of his power for Jesus. The point of this story is Jesus rescuing Peter. And that's the case for any miracle. Any miracle is not about, oh, wow, my arm got better. Oh, wow, my hearing came back. I affirm Jesus is a healer. But at the end of the day, all of our healing and all of our brokenness, when it gets restored, is not about us because we'll get broken again. We live more in disability than ability. At the end of the day, it's all about Jesus being the Savior, Jesus being the healer, Jesus being the sanctifier and the coming King, that he is the one who brings wholeness into our bodies. And we can't lose focus on that because he's the rescuer in this story. It's about Jesus' power as the master of the chaos, the deliverer from death. We get hung up in the miracle that we miss this point. Disciples of Jesus are meant to surrender to his power even if fear gets in the way. This story displays God's faithfulness in our chaos and his ability to control our problems, whether it's sin, disease, financial crisis. He's powerful over it all and able to rescue us. And what's beautiful is that while authentic surrender to Jesus' power brings us to deeper intimacy within deeper knowing of his love, this part of the story shows us that Jesus is faithful in that chaos, and he's patient with our surrender. He'll walk with us and say, child, are you ready to hold on to my hand? And his hand is always offered, even if we feel like it's too late. He's always the rescuer. Authentic surrender to Jesus' power brings us to deeper intimacy with him. It's no secret that life is chaotic like those big, tall waves that you find off the coasts of Hawaii or New Jersey or Los Angeles. Life is difficult and sometimes impossible to manage in our power. It's not uncommon for situations to go from bad to worse. Just like what should have been a normal boat ride turning into what what might be a ghost-powered storm, you know? But note that the hands of Jesus are in this story. And in the Gospels, they are usually mentioned when Jesus displays his saving power. And in his hands, they bring life. They bring beauty. They banish demons. They purify the impure. It calms the chaos. He reaches out a hand and says, be still. He reaches out to a person and says, be clean. He reaches out to us and says, be whole. His hands are gentle to the touch and are not abusive. And I want to address that maybe sometimes we don't trust the hands of God because there have been human hands that have also abused us. And it's very easy to take our past abuses and put them onto God when God doesn't own those abuses. And I want to validate those experiences because it does make trusting God hard. And it does make it riskier to trust how beautiful his saving love is. Trusting God involves risk. But when we truly and authentically surrender to him, we have the freedom to truly and joyfully believe that certainly he is God's son. So if I haven't been explicit yet, let me be clear. Jesus is master of the chaos, not you. I want to invite you to be honest with the level of control you have over your chaos. Don't live enslaved to looking like or playing the role of the strong Christian, you know, that has no problems ever in his life because I got saved years ago. You still have problems and we still struggle with trusting Jesus. Let's be real and be honest with where we are today. Are we authentically trusting that Jesus is master over the chaos? Where are we afraid? Where are we trying to control aggressively, maybe manipulatively? Where have we not surrendered the power to him? 
we can't do this life without his power. He's a better healer to our bodies. He's a better evangelist to our children, a missionary to the lost, miracle worker provider. The power is better in his hands. So trust with me today that the power in his hands are full of love. It's his role to save us in our chaos and manage it. It's our role to cry, Master, rescue me. Will we trust the hand he extends to take control of our unmanageable circumstances? So what chaos are you experiencing? How do we trust the power of the master of chaos, the God-man Jesus? If we don't surrender to his power, we miss an opportunity to see how deeply he loves us. So I'd like to invite the worship team up. And um, we're going to take a moment to sit in prayer together and give you a chance to practice surrendering to him here. And if you need to or want to, I have some people who are assigned to pray over you specifically. They're going to stand up either here or right over here or in the back corners as well. They will be standing up in just a moment. So prayer for people, if you could please stand up and go to either one of those corners. And I want us to take a moment to surrender to him. The prayer team is available if you need to vocalize or confess that you want to trust his power in any area of your life. Please do not feel like there's no, there's no area of your life that is untouchable by Jesus, okay? So if you feel like that nudge from Jesus, that burning fire in your heart, or maybe like that uncontrollable desire of like, I need to get up there, take that opportunity. If not, this isn't a moral problem, you know? If you need to sit here and just sit in the love of Jesus, that is okay too. People are available for you here to pray with you. So that way you know that you're not alone. And so you can have some help hearing the voice of Jesus over your life. We have to be honest with the fear that we have and repent for any unhealthy, unhealthy controlling patterns and surrender to Christ to be the master of the chaos. So let's sit together in his love. Holy Spirit, you've clearly been in this space. You've clearly demonstrated your love and you're demonstrating your love even as we speak. Jesus, we have sunk ourselves on many occasions. Today, can we reach out a hand to you? Give us the strength to reach out to your gentle hands. And even right now, I'm getting just a sense from the voice of the Father saying, you are welcome in my arms. There is no pain in his arms. He is here for you and he deeply loves you. If you have a communion cup in front of you, we'll partake together as we're praying and surrendering. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, take this in remembrance of me. His broken body is his extension of his power and his love over to you to declare that he loves you so well and he loves you so much. It's in his broken body that our bodies, our finances, our lives are made whole. The things that are uncontrollable become held by the master of the chaos. Let's partake together.
then he took the cup. What's beautiful is that in the Jewish Seder, this is called the cup of redemption. Because you don't know why? He's going on to redeem us. He's going to deliver us. He went to rescue us. And he said, take this in remembrance of me. And remember that he's here to rescue you from your chaos. He's here to rescue you from death, from sin, from all sorts of brokenness. His power is not limited by your brokenness. And it washes over everything. Let's take this in remembrance of him. Holy Spirit, we trust you. And we love you. And we give you this time and space to do what you see fit. Would you please, if you need to sit and just sit with his presence and talk with him about what you need to surrender to him, please feel free to. But if not, you are also free to stand and worship with us. Thanks so much for joining us today. If this podcast has been helpful for you to know Jesus and make him known, then check out our website for more sermons and other resources, theplantchurch.org.